Hi, and welcome to a Really Good Enough Parent podcast. My name is Christine Altwies. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and for 30 years I worked in intercountry and domestic adoption and family counseling. I'm the clinical director at Pona Roots Counseling Center, where our focus is on family systems, and I'm also a mother. I've created a Really Good Enough Parent podcast in response to what we see every day in our clinic. Childhood mental health issues are skyrocketing, and it doesn't have to be this way. I know that really good enough parenting is a skill we all possess. As a parent myself, I also understand how easy it is to lose sight and to mistrust or panic in the face of a melting down child or an impudent teen. The good news is that you have what it takes to help your child. Take a breath. See your child's innocence. You can do this. This podcast will feature some of the incredible people I've been lucky enough to meet in my life. No two have raised their children the same, and all have done a really good enough job. You'll hear new perspectives on how to handle tough situations. You'll be reminded of how your own parenting takes its cue from childhood. And hopefully, you'll feel invigorated to go do a really good enough job at this most rewarding of all human endeavors. A Really Good Enough Parent podcast is designed to be story time for adults. So thanks for being here with me today. I do appreciate you. Enjoy the show. Coming up on A Really Good Enough Parent podcast, I am stupid happy to share with you my mentor, supervisor, teacher, and role model, Barbara Mullen. Barbara is the proud mother to four grown humans. She taught marriage and family therapy at a number of universities, including Humboldt State University. For many years, Barbara directed mental health programs for Catholic Charities and the Salvation Army while running her own private practice. Barbara has a near cult following among clients and fellow practitioners. As if all that weren't enough to make you want to get to know her, Barbara recently celebrated her 90th birthday. Many years ago, I was lucky enough to be an intern working under Barbara's supervision in a sex offender treatment program for felons on parole. Under Barbara's loving direction, I learned to care about and connect with my clients. I don't think it's a stretch to say that Barbara's approach to life and mental health, both as a mom and therapist, has inspired just about every person she's ever encountered. So with that, Coming up next on a Really Good Enough Parent podcast, my dear friend, Barbara Mullen. Welcome back to a Really Good Enough Parent podcast. I know I always say this, that I'm excited to have my next guest, but this next guest, I don't even have words to say how excited I am because not only do I love and admire this woman, but she's also the reason that I'm a therapist, my all around most favorite therapist in the entire universe. And she was kind enough to give us a little bit of time this afternoon. So without further ado, I give you my most favorite therapist in the entire universe, Barbara Mullen. Hello, Barbara. Hello, Christine. I I must say that Christine is my favorite student of all time, too. Uh-oh. It's mutual. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm sorry. It's all right. We know she says that to everybody. It's okay. <laughs> I tell all my children they're my favorite. And whatever, on their birthday, whatever year they are, it was 1962, was the happiest day of my life <laughs> for all of them. It's okay. All four of them. It's a trick of the trade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. And they know it, and I know it. And just like I just had a surprise birthday party, and they sent me an invitation. <laughs> they sent you an invitation to your surprise birthday party? party? Yes. So that's the way we roll. That's the way we roll. <laughs> that's how you all roll. Can you share with our listeners your fabulous age? It just gives you a little more gravitas. Uh, well, the invitation that... My daughter had printed, said, 90 years ago today was the happiest day of my life. So, yeah. And I I think it's worth bragging about because, (laughs) I mean, not only 90, but you're better than ever, which is pretty incredible. Except I just dropped my daughter off at the uh, airport and I got a wheelchair guy for her. And um, 
somehow it came out that I was 90, and he said, are you driving? <laughs> I said, yes. He said, I didn't think you were a day over 60. <laughs> That's great. Okay, so I you suggested that I start with my early life, uh, my own parent, parenting as I was growing up, and I'm about to... I was going to tell you, I'm an only child, and uh, my mother was a nar complete narcissist, and I don't think she ever, I think she had an idea of what her ideal daughter was, and that's what I was in her mind, no matter what I really was, because she never, I don't, I never felt seen, I never felt really known. Until the day she died at 96, I don't think she even knew what I did for a living. However, she was diving off the end of her swimming pool at the condo on the, off the no diving sign still. <laughs> so right up until the time she passed? Right until she passed. She had her cigarette and a martini and blew out her birthday candles and died. She had stopped eating. Oh. She wasn't sick, but she had stopped eating. So... Anyway, my father died when I was 16, so my mother and I were, you know, the family. Uh, she worked, but as I said, she, and, and I went to Catholic schools and got all, you know, A's and did superbly in school, and she didn't care. I mean, that was just, you know, she just expected that or something. She didn't ever look at my grades. She never liked a present that I made for her in school. When I was in grade school, we had to make presents on Mother's Day or whatever it was. And she never, ever liked it one. To this day, I have a problem giving people gifts because I never, I'm all, I never, I'm sure what, um, if they're going to like it or not. Anyway, that, that says a lot about the impact of what our parents do, the messages they send when we're young. Yes. Don't underestimate the power yes. of those messages, right? Yes. But she worked as a secretary, and I went to my private girls' schools on a bus. I was born in St. Louis and grew up there, went to a girls' high school, Catholic girls' high school and Catholic women's college. It was then Webster College. And um, and then I got married when I graduated to my boyfriend that I had been going out with since I was a junior in high school. And um, we got married, after, we both graduated at the same time and I got married and, um, and it was all a lovely wedding in her mind, <laughs> but I don't think she really actually knew anybody that was there. I mean, whatever she saw, she saw. She made it up in her mind, I think. But um, she begged me to move to Florida with her, but I said, Mother, I, this, it, you know, this is in the 50s. And I said, Mother, I cannot live in Florida. It's too Republican and it's too racist. A lot of movements started while I was present. I was teaching all black high school kids when um, Black is Beautiful started and the Black Panthers. And I was a part of that. And I was a part of the women's movement with Gloria Steinem. I have questions about the mother didn't know me, mother was a narcissist, mother didn't um, care to get to know me and mother had her idea of what I should be. Cause you're the second person in a row who's shared that with me. Really? Uh, yeah. And I'm wondering not to excuse your mother. Um, I tend to operate from the position of everyone's doing the best they can with what tools they've been given or they have access to. I believe that. Um, I'm not yeah. mad at my I just wonder what it was like to be a mom back then, you know, and what she was struggling with and, you know, clearly whatever she did or didn't do, you turned out spectacular. Uh, she, um, what she did was leave me alone to be whoever I was going to be. I mean, whatever, whatever it was, she, I said she loved me, even though I knew absolutely that she didn't really know me. But she always loved me. She always supported me. And 
she always wanted me to be around, but mm-hmm. she definitely wanted to move to Florida. Did you feel loved even though you didn't feel seen? I I think I did. It's hard to hard to know, but I did feel loved. I felt like I felt like I was re- let me I I felt like I was really important, and I and I felt like she was proud of me, but she didn't act exactly know what she was proud of. I was just. I was a good girl, very good girl. I was a virgin when I got married. So I never caused her any reason to worry about, you know, what I was doing or not doing. She was there. And she left you alone. Because one of the things we also talk about a lot here is, you know, how much helicoptering, how much supervision, parenting nowadays is so different from what it was when you were being raised, right? I mean, when you think about the things you went out and did without supervision, you were sort of left to raise yourself. She said a really interesting thing to me before she died. She said, she called me Bab, because those were my initials when I was born, Barbara and Butler. And she um, she said, Bab, you know, there's a song that I've always thought reminded me of you. And it was, I did it my way. Frank Sinatra. Mm. And that was pretty mm. much how I, I grew up. I did what I did, whatever I wanted. I became a Catholic when everybody else was a Presbyterian. And that was long, long ago. <laughs> but um, I really, she didn't ever stand in my way. She didn't ever tell me I couldn't do anything like that. I, you know, I was guess I was pretty trouble free kid. I don't remember a lot of um, conflict at all. I would conf- had conflicts with my father. I remember when I was seven years old, he called somebody and I threw my food on his face. Don't ask me why. You know, I don't know where that came from. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. I mean, St. Louis is a very segregated place, so somehow I was already a. That where do you think that came from? How do you think you I knew have to do that? No idea. I it's one of my most vivid memories because my father spanked me. It was the only time I've ever been spanked, and so I have this vivid memory of it. But I have no idea where that immediate rage came from when he used that word. Back then, people used that word freely, and nobody not, knew to not I use. Never, it. I hated that word then, even. I mean, before then, it was, it was really rage. It was instant rage. It made me believe in past lives or something. So let's flash forward. You married right out of college. Yeah. And then that's what happened. And then, Where'd you go? Uh, then my husband was in the ROTC. So we went in the military for three years. And I was super Catholic, mind you. And I was not using any birth control. We were both virgins. I think I was. But um, so... There was nothing to prevent me from getting pregnant. I was totally okay about getting pregnant. We we moved around a lot, but he was only in for three years in the Air Force, and we came back to St. Louis. And when I was like 26, I said you know, we had been married. 27. We had, I had been we had been married six years, and I hadn't gotten pregnant. Um, so I put my name in for adoption. I mean, our names in for adoption. And I immediately got pregnant. So my first child was a boy, and he was born in 1960. And um, then my daughter was born in 1962, and another daughter was born in 1965. And my youngest son was born in 1967. I got divorced when about three years later, and I pretty much raised them all myself. I wanted to go where the action was. I wanted to be where all the hippies were and and where all the movements were happening. I was teaching all black kids in an inner city school in St. Louis. I was teaching English. And um, I said to the to them, we were they were great kids. We put out a magazine called Write On, and they were writing poetry about it. The black movement. I asked them, I said, you know, I'd really like to go to California. Um, would you kids mind? I know that we just got to, we've been waiting for a long time to get together because they were like a super special class. And I was waiting for them and they were waiting for me. So anyway, uh, they said, why are you want to go? I had met a poet who lived in Humboldt County 
and he convinced me it was a place to live. And so I drove my VW bus. Oh, I said to my kids, do you guys want to move to California? And they said, sure. At the time, the youngest was five and my oldest was 11. And he had a paper corner route. It was a, he sold papers on a corner and he loved it. And he didn't want to leave that. But other than that, the kids were really open to moving to California. So we drove across the country in my VW bus and up to San Francisco and up to Humboldt County. And, and we, they established what was happening there. What he had told me about was that parents were starting their own school. It was called Equinox. And the parents were deciding on the, the curriculum and um, and the teachers and what would happen in that school, which was very radical at the time. And um, pretty much it was going to be like, maybe I was raised, it was pretty much like individual, the kids were going to be individually treated and their, their studies were going to be, you know, individualized as well. I, one of my kids, Maggie, my daughter, my younger daughter, liked to just sit in the car and read a book. And they let her do that very frequently. You know, it was just that that was the way she was. She loved animals and horses, but other than that, she loved books more than anything. And she still does. <laughs> exactly. Still exactly like that. Anyway, I was really excited about that school, which was the real, I think, was the turning point of why I finally moved there. Because I was a little bit worried about my kids going to segregate, you know, schools and just, you know, normal public school stuff that wasn't very exciting. Tell me about that time, Barbara, you're, you're raising your kids in this fairly, um, sounds sort of classical hippie environment, Humboldt County. It doesn't get any more hippie than that yeah. in the sixties and seventies. Right. And you were living with a tall, skinny poet who I met, who's a lovely man. Yeah. Um, and, and doing, Know, alternative education and you were working as a teacher at that point or were you a therapist already I thought I would go and get a job as a teacher I just figured I would but all the teacher jobs in Arcata were being in the high school were being uh, filled by faculty wives because there's a university there it was Humboldt State University they renamed it Polytech something but um so I, there were no teaching jobs, so I worked as a waitress for a while, and then um, I was going to therapy, and I loved it, and I decided I wanted to be a therapist, so I enrolled in the university in Hill State, and um, I worked then as a bartender and went to school in the daytime. And the kids, my kids would come into the bar and say, I want to draw from my mother's salary. They were always coming in to get money for whatever they were doing. Our kid is a really kid-friendly, always was a kid-friendly town. You know, they were very safe in that town. They come to think of it, I kind of let them grow up on their own too, like my mother did in a way. I mean, they were, we lived in, we rented an old farmhouse with a barn and a pasture. And we had a wood stove we had to cook on that heated the water in the house. And um, I made granola in the oven and I baked bread and I did all that hippie stuff. And um, well, I went to school and they went to school. And I don't know, they, we had good meals at night with healthy meals we had chickens so we all had our own eggs we had rabbits and after uh jerry killed the first rabbit to eat because i don't know if you've ever heard a rabbit scream but it, no i've never heard a rabbit scream i don't think horrendous and none of the kids would eat that meat as a matter of fact they were completely horrified but they worked in the yard they took care of the chickens a lot and my Youngest daughter really wanted a pony, so I got her a pony when she was eight or nine years old, and she loved that pony. She rode it all the time. 
and took care of it. We had a goat named Begonia who was like the family pet, but she hated me, I think. She learned how to turn the knob on the kitchen door. And she came in one day and jumped on my bed and peed on it. <laughs> nice. Uh, that's a sign. Yeah. That's for sure a sign. And I have such a beautiful picture of an idyllic Humboldt County single mom with four kids trying to do the best you can, living in a way that is fully organic and natural and, and following no one's rules but your higher calling. And, you know, it is, it's a bit of a cliche and a stereotype, but you did it for real and it worked out. I guess what I'm curious about, any thoughts or tips you share with parents on how you manage discipline or how you kept your children on the right path or whether that was even a consideration or what that looked like if someone had been there watching that, what would they have seen? You know, I don't. We had a lot of talks about what they were doing. I mean, when they got old enough to date and I knew who they were going out with and all that kind of stuff, we had, I knew what they were doing all the time, but I don't remember a lot of conflict about what they were really, they were hardworking kids. They went to school. They could walk to the school. It was a long walk, but they could walk. And, um, and they would just be on their own. Well, I was at school. I was at the university doing my thing, and um, they were doing their thing. And then we would all get together and cooked. We cooked a lot together. They each had a night to cook, and they were famous for their their signature dish. <laughs> one was chili. One was macaroni. You know, there there were four main dishes that we had every week. But um, and they were healthy. We had. You know, we had a huge vegetable garden. I, there just wasn't much conflict. The kids, uh, the man that I was living with had two sons, and one of them, each of them were one of the ages of one of my kids, and they became best friends. So actually six kids were living in the house part of the time. Those those kids were not there all the time. They were with their mother sometimes. But they are now with one of them lives behind me right now <laughs> in Waimanalo. I love that. I love that. And I'm also really grateful that he's good at IT. Hey, I have a question about um, the your mom raising you or how your mom sort of struggled with, or maybe struggle is a judgment that isn't needed, but she, you didn't felt seen or heard or understood. You didn't feel that she really was able to get to know who you really were. Um, you called her a narcissist. Right. Um, how much of that influenced your desire to be different and get to know your kids and, and have your kids feel seen and understood? Because I just saw them and we talked and we I understood them. I understood when they were angry with me or with whatever was going on. They didn't have any qualms about expressing it. Well, one of them kind of just kept it to herself and, but um, they were each different from each other, very different. They came into the world, I'm convinced, with different agendas. Because all of them, the minute they were born, I could see that they had their own thing. And they did indeed follow that own thing. Whatever that personality was, it was there when they were born, which is another thing that makes me believe in past lives or karma or something. But pretty much, they will tell you that they raised themselves. Interesting. But I was there all the time. <laughs> you knew that you put in the hard work. <laughs> yes. yes, indeed. So um, I don't know. It would be really good to have one of the kids here right now to ask them how I disciplined them or how I, how they knew that I was their parent. Um, actually, you know, the it takes a village to raise a child idea. We truly were yeah. in that kind of situation. I mean, it wasn't just me. It was their friends' parents. It was just random people in the community that 
that love the kids and like the donut lady in the, in the donut shop next to the bar where I worked, loved my youngest son. She would ask me every day, how's TJ? <laughs> and he continues to be most women's favorite person, right? He has got away with he, <laughs> yeah, he does. He does. <laughs> He, yeah, he was a firefighter for a long time. He loved fireworks. That was one time I got mad at him when the police, he was shooting off fireworks down in the bottoms, it was called. We, there was a large farmland between us and the ocean. And it's where I ride, rode my bike, and they rode their bikes through there. Because Anyway, he was shooting rockets off in the bottoms, and I could see him. And I thought, oh, man, I hope that's not TJ down there shooting those fireworks. And sure enough, the cops came to my door and said, we think that's TJ down there. <laughs> what was that kind of town? So we're going to go pick him up. Is that okay? And I said, yeah, by all means. So they, they, yeah. they read him the riot act and then brought him home. I'm wondering if it has something to do with, you know, I mean, obviously you were open with your kids. You demonstrated your love. You were curious about who they were. They felt I'm sure, even though they're not here to, you know, testify, I'm pretty confident that if you were to ask any of your four kids whether they felt seen and understood by you, uh, they'd say, yes, you have that ability with everybody. So I don't know why you wouldn't have had it with your kids. Well, maybe I was being a therapist even then. I'm not sure. Because I've been a therapist ever since then. And um, it's a natural offer almost for me, to listen to people and see them for who they are, you know, and try, and try to develop that, try to help them develop that, the real, the real person inside. You know? What have you learned from working with adults about childhood and about parenting? Because you've probably seen some patterns and you've probably developed some theories. I absolutely have a lot of information about that, about each client. I don't know if you remember or not, but the family drawings that I have, all my clients do, even couples that come in, I have them all do, because it's so much information. I have my clients draw who was there when they were born when they came home from the hospital or whatever, who was there to take care of them? Because human babies are completely dependent on people to take care of them. So we all learned, every single one of us, although of course we don't remember, we learned how we had to be in order to get our needs met. And so I have them all draw and then I just drop it on them. I say, so draw everybody that was there as animals. I'm a big believer in metaphor. And they learn, and I learn a lot when we go through that drawing because I ask them what they thought, uh, what they thought they had decided about how they had to survive. You know, in order that in order to survive, they had to please these people around them somehow, or get their attention somehow. So it really says a lot about the animals they drew. And it, anyway, learn. I learned a lot about them. And it's obvious, it's so obvious when you do that exercise with your client, why they're the way they are. I mean, it's so obvious that they repeat those patterns in their relationships and, you know, it affects every, all of us have those decisions that we made that we don't remember making, but they make our, our trauma response go off. If we think we're in danger, survival danger, you know, fight or flight, it pops up when we least expect it sometimes and we don't know what's going on. That's being, that early survival stuff is being triggered. Can you give some examples for people who might be confused by this? What would be some animals and what would be some meaning in there? Well, an awful lot of people draw their um, fathers as a bear and um, so it looks always like the fathers, if they draw that as a bear, would be like a nurturing figure, unless it was a, you know, kind of a scary grizzly, grizzly black. bear. And a lot of them draw their mothers as 
uh, in the cat family, lionesses or something. But um, anyway, you can tell they just when they start talking about the qualities of those animals, it comes out so strongly about uh, who they who they related to and who really took care of their survival needs and who ignored them or who uh, was abusive. A lot of times the abuse comes out. A lot of times they're little, the tiniest little thing hiding in a corner. And so their survival, their survival decision was to be not seen or heard. Another just survival decision was, uh, uh, you know, they had to fight. They had to fight. A lot of them, if, if they're fighting to protect younger siblings or something, that comes out in the drawing. If they have to be, uh, if they have to be smiling and fawning and you know, the I love everybody kind of kind of people, um, that comes out. Those are all survival decisions that come out all the time, and I see them in the couples that I see. That those dynamics are being recreate recreated in the couple. You can't get away from your past. No. You can't. Which is why parenting is such a crucial task. It's extremely crucial, and it starts at birth because birth, that's our first trauma, is birth. So how we treat newborns is essentially important. When I was working at, I was worked at a bookstore for a while in, in Arcata, the book that I had to review for a periodical that they put out was... Um, Birth Without Violence by Boye. Uh, I think this was in the it was in the eighties, maybe. And I wrote in the review. I think this is the most important book ever written because I think that kind of started the warm birth movement. You know that kind of being born in warm water instead of bright lights and somebody yelling when you're born and getting smacked or whatever they did, but. Um, Anyway, I don't know whatever happened to that book. Apparently, people have never heard of it. A lot of people have never heard of that book. And I, and I really think it's a vitally important book. Because I will put that book in the show notes, and hopefully we will cause a, a reprint to happen, or people will go to Thrift Books or Amazon and insist to have it. Somehow. That would be great. I've got another one that should be added to a list is Marshall McLuhan's The Medium is the Message because people are doing things online that should be done in person, like therapy. I'm sorry we're online right now. I wish I were sitting there with you in your room. <laughs> I wish it were too. <laughs> but I'm glad we can at least do this. So to the point of the parenting, and I appreciate everything you're saying, when you have clients sitting with you in therapy who are more resilient or who seem to be able to manage the challenges that have come their way more easily than others? What are some of the consistencies or what are some of the consistent um, uh, historical facts or family attributes or, um, you know, sort of informational pieces from their childhood that you have uh, seen as sort of consistencies? That was a horrible question. What have you seen consistently in people who may be more resilient or better able to handle their challenges if you have seen some consistency? You mean, what do I see in the way they grew up, the way they were parented? Uh, Parenting tips. I think the most important thing is that they, the child has been treated as a person already, really from the moment they're born that's different from any other person, and that parents need to nurture that the realness of that person. You have to look for the real, you know, because kids are traumatized when they're born. They might be, you know, screaming, whatever, but that doesn't mean that they're not gonna be really wonderful people. I just, yeah. I just think parents need to spend a lot of time listening, listening to their children, listening really carefully, like a therapist, <laughs> really, you know, listening, validating, 
where it's, it should be validated and kind of trashing it if it should be trashed. You know, like, don't do that. <laughs> you know, that's not a good thing to do because, you know, and it has to be, it, I don't know. I think you have to, like, respect why kids want to do things that are dangerous or just not good to do. But um, I don't know. My kids kind of understood it every time I explained. They, that's not to say they never did. <laughs> my, my daughters, they were both very attractive as teenagers, and they went out with boys a lot. They were very popular. And I told them they could never go out on a motorcycle. I mean, that just that was just too scary for me. And they have kind of recently told me how they met the guys around the corner and the guys that they were going out with on motorcycles. They met them around the corner, so I never heard the motorcycle. Or... Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, boy. That was a shock. <laughs> yeah. Good thing you found out 40 years after the fact. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to I want to sort of bear down on that a bit because I love that. And I, I think it's important to tease out some of the details. So on the one hand, listen to your child, validate your child, get to know your child, honor and respect your child's opinion and voice. Yes. Be curious. Right. Um, but also you're still the parent. So it doesn't mean the kids should have everything they want, do everything they want, no. be sort of unfettered and allowed to move about as you know adults when they're children still. You do have to give them some grounding. And as you said, tell them when some of the things they're saying are trash. And that can be done gently and lovingly, mm -hmm. firmly if needed. Somebody said recently that one of my guests was talking about how frustrating it must be to be a child because... You may have certain thoughts and feelings and ideas, but you're still a child. And I think um, that's a really important thing to remember. For me, that's made a big difference in how I parent yes. is sort of thinking about, you know, my children need to be respected. And I think because we tend to be so black and white, we're not, we often don't want to wrestle with nuance. And so we need things to be clean and simple for us. You know, and I think that leaves out a lot of the important work that's necessary for children, wherein we are, you know, sort of saying, I know you have these thoughts and feelings that are valid, and I'm still the parent, so let's figure out how we can do this. I think yeah. many parents just want to chop down authority. I think it's really, really important to talk to your children about stuff like that, according to the child you're talking to. You know, I... I never had any just black and white rules except don't go out on a motorcycle. <laughs> but, but but I really talked to the I tried to talk to them to their strengths and their and their fears. I tried to know those things and talk to them in those terms, you know. If you know your child, you can talk to them about stuff like this. And you just I can't emphasize enough you have to know them. No know what's going on with them be open all the time to what's going on with them and don't be critical and say that's not good the minute you hear about it talk to them about what's happening yeah i never ever spanked one of my kids ever it should be a no-brainer at this point but i think a lot of parents or too many parents still don't quite understand that and I think what many parents may struggle with is the idea that they were raised a certain way and it worked out well for them um, and so they're going to you know, do that with their children. But I wonder in those cases, I've said this a million times, but I wonder in those cases whether they might have done even better if they had been raised a little more lovingly. Yeah. I mean, we remember some culturally people hit their children. I remember I was working at Catholic Charities and we had a cultural training for the Samoan culture one time. And the first thing the women said to us was, don't tell us we can't hit our children. It's part of our culture. And I think that has to be respected because it's been right. part of their culture. But but I, I'd like to talk to them about why children shouldn't be hit because they don't understand. But if they've grown up in an atmosphere where physical 
punishment is accepted norm, I guess it's okay. I mean, the kids seem to accept it. I know a lot of Samoan people that are really great people. And so if it's, if it's a cultural norm, it's probably not so weird, but I don't know. It would have been really weird for my kids to be hit. I mean, they would have thought it was really like, what in the hell is going on? Yeah. I once cursed at one of my children long ago. I said something like that was a jackass move. And I didn't call my child a jackass, but I said that was a jackass mood. I admit it was one of my lowest moments, but I still get that thrown in my face. They still remind me, you called me a jackass once. I was like, no, I actually didn't call you a jackass. I said that was a jackass move. Nice, but that's nice. still like that. I slide out the side there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Syntax, come on. Well, kids do um, remember stuff like that. I remember stuff like that. When you're a really good enough parent, then little infractions like that stand out, right? But it's how we recover. That's what matters. I want to ask you a little bit about raising children with love and understanding for all people, because you are, for for many reasons, one of my favorite people, but especially because of your early uh, understanding of racial injustice and the importance of equality and diversity and respect and all those things that you've lived you've been a living example since before it was cool yeah or before it was sorry I didn't to minimize it by calling it cool before it was even on people's radar people have made small we have made small progress I know it's amazing isn't it I can't believe that we're repeating the same things what I want to hear from you about if if you can share sort of how to raise children um, in today's, you know, world with all that's going on, you practice, you live and breathe and practice equality, respect, anti-racist thinking. How does that work as a parent without burdening our children with too much of the complexities? We don't want our children being raised from a place of fear. We want to raise our children with love and awareness. And when I say fear, I mean, we don't want our children to carry too heavy a burden about all the things the world still needs to work out, but we want them to be appropriate agents of change and aware. So how do you balance all that as a parent? Well, there were... In St. Louis, they started busing some black kids into the, the, we lived in the suburbs, and it was all white suburbs, and they started busing some kids from the inner city into one of the grade schools there to, to, um, just to deal with that, which I thought was very enlightened of them. And I pulled my kids out of the regular public school and put them in that school. I've just made sure that my kids have been raised that with a, diverse cultural in a cultural a diverse environment they've they've always known they've always known african-american kids they've always they've always known um other whatever they're just they are my kids that don't have a prejudice bone in their body i mean they don't that they distinguish from good and bad people but it has nothing to do with their race or their ethnic background so your way of raising your children with that kind of love and openness was just to make sure they had a broad variety of yeah. people in their lives. I've made sure that that's been a very important value for me that I would to do that with my kids as they're growing up to expose them intimately, like have people live in your house for a while or whatever. So they, uh, they know just that they're normal human beings like everybody else. Yeah, that's a that's a wonderful thing to be able to do. That's how I was raised with people coming and going in our house, staying with us, people of all backgrounds. And that's a gift that, you know, would be great for people to be able to give their kids. Not everyone can do that. But if you can't have people living with you, at least you can be trying to make sure your kids have access to a broad variety. They go to schools Um, that are integrated and you know, so, so they have that exposure. What have you seen in your practice now with, with I don't know, your younger clients coming in with the increased levels of anxiety because of the strife in the world and what they're feeling through media? 
And how are you encouraging parents to handle that stress that children are now experiencing in a very real way? Well, my youngest son was staying with me for a little while because he had to have surgery here. He lives on Kauai, he had to come over. And he was appalled that we watched the news. And he said, he said, you raised us to eat dinner around the dinner table and not to watch the news. You, we, it's true, I never watched television while I was raising my kids, never, ever. And I did insist that we all eat together. And, you know, and I, I realized he's right. I have fallen into that pattern and it's not good for me. You know, the, the stuff going on in the world gives me a knot in my stomach. I mean, I just sit there and go, oh, no, no, that can't be happening. So, you know, so what I'm hearing you say, if I were to extrapolate, is prevent or, you know, sort of keep your children safe from too much exposure to the media. I absolutely to, think so. And yeah. it's very hard to do now with everybody has phone, everybody has access to an internet or something. So, you know, I don't know what I would be doing right now if I had kids. I, I think there's a real, real danger in them having cell phones and spending all their time. I see it in restaurants. I see kids sitting there. They don't even look around them. They don't know who's around them. They just, the whole family is sitting there staring at a screen. You know, they put it down long enough to eat and that's about it. They don't talk to each other. The parents are not talking to the kids. The kids are oblivious. Yeah, it's a very real problem. I think even even intelligent, educated adults, many of us are addicted to our phones. And I think, as you say, you know, don't have them on and definitely be modeling the behavior when you're right. around your child. I, absolutely. It's, it's easy. It's much easier. Your kids don't bother you when they're busy with their phones. But And I understand busy parents with a lot of kids or even just a few difficult, whatever, really loving that the kids are doing something else and preoccupied. But I don't, I really don't think it's good. I hate to be one of those. Don't let your kids have phones. But I think that, I think that it should be really controlled. I think that I think at ninety, you're you are uh, authorized to have a few strong opinions. <laughs> I think at this age, I think you've seen enough to be uh, to totally entitled to your strong opinions about a few things. So I'll I'll give you that. Okay, you got it. Thanks, honey. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> we're um, almost out of time, so I'm curious before we wrap up if there's anything you wish you had said in the past 50 minutes or any parting thoughts, anything you're currently obsessed with, anything you want people to know or think or read or check into. I want everybody to read The Medium is the Message by Marshall McLuhan. <laughs> I will put that in the show notes. Whose who's, uh, main point is that between the the giver of the message and the receiver of the message, if each time it's translated into something uh, electrical or, you know, whatever, uh, it, it's the message gets colder. So you can imagine how cold a message coming across a screen on the internet is by the time somebody's talking to you, whatever. I mean, that message is just cold. Virginia Satir said the message the message sent the message sent is not necessarily the message received. That's for sure. And I think parents a really important thing to keep in mind that just because you're talking at your kid doesn't mean that your kid is hearing what you think you're saying. Exactly. And just because you want your child to understand all these rules and all your reasons for wanting them to do the things you want them to do. It's really important to take a step back and think about what does it feel like to be the kid on the receiving end of that. Right. I think it's really good to say to your kid once in a while, what did you just hear me say? You know, and think, and then understand how how much is lost in translation. What did you just hear me say? That's a really important reminder. Okay. okay. Barbara, this has been fabulous and way too quick, but I'm really grateful that you've carved out this time because I wanted everyone 
who listens to this podcast to hear you and to get to know you. I'm so glad you have a podcast. That's all I have to say, because you should be listened to. Thank you. As your favorite ever student and mentee, I will take that. Okay, <laughs> okay Barbara Mullen, thank you. It's been wonderful. We'll talk soon. Bye. This has been another episode of A Really Good Enough Parent podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd leave me a rating or subscribe. Subscribing helps boost my ratings, and rating me obviously helps boost my ratings, but only if you liked what you heard. But apropos that, whether or not you do or don't like this, I really do like feedback. So please drop me a line if you'd like. Let me know if there's someone you want me to interview or a certain topic you'd like me to tackle. You can find out more about A Really Good Enough Parent podcast on the Pono Roots website at ponoroots.org. That's P-O-N-O-R-O-O-T-S dot org. Pono Roots is a nonprofit program, and if you wish to support our work, donations are always welcome. And with that, I'll leave you a quote from Carl Jung and something that my children remind me of every day. You are what you do, not what you say you'll do. Thank you. Take care. Aloha. George loves Detroit.